everyone and welcome to Talking Shop, Herbert Smith Freehills podcast series, exploring the latest global trends for consumer sector companies. My name is Susan Black. I'm a competition partner based in our London office. I'm also co-head of our global consumer sector practice group. I'm delighted to be joined today by Rachel Lydgate and Yanis Biller. Hi, Susan, and thanks. I'm a disputes partner also based in London. And my litigation practice includes advising various consumer sector clients on issues and potential disputes arising out of the ESG landscape, including increasing risk for clients around allegations of greenwashing. Hi both. I'm Yanis Biller, a senior associate in our ESG and climate change practice. And I work on a number of matters across the UK, US and EMEA focused at the wider ESG and climate change related space. Thank you both. We're going to spend some time today discussing the trends that Yanis and Rachel are seeing as of November 2023 around greenwashing claims, particularly in the consumer sector, the drivers for those claims and the steps that clients should seek to take to minimise these risks to their business or to respond to any risks or claims that might arise. So perhaps an obvious one to start with, what exactly is greenwashing? Now, Greenwashing is a term that many people will be familiar with in one way or another, but it generally refers to the situation where business makes a false, inaccurate or misleading or unsubstantiated claim about its environmental performance. But it's important to also note that greenwashing doesn't just come up in that instance. It could also be a social performance that might have been overstatement, such as its investment strategy or approach with regards to corporate governance matters. The statement might be on a label of a product, in advertisement materials, or in a company's annual accounts. But that statement gives consumers, investors, lenders, or other stakeholders an inaccurate impression of an aspect of the performance of that business. Sometimes that statement might be deliberately false or made with reckless indifference to the truth. But far more often in our experience, the statement might have been made with quite noble intentions or in the pursuit of, of more important sustainability goal ideas of that business or with a belief in its truth. However, in our day-to-day -day experience, we are dealing with quite complex multinational businesses here where the supply chain and the statements that are made could inadvertently have caused um, issues with regards to um, the uh, accuracy of that information. Thanks, Yanis. That's a, a good way of setting the scene, I think. So are these the kinds of state misstatements and misrepresentation risks that we've seen before, albeit growing into a new space? Is that fair? I think that is fair, Susan. Um, from, from a purely legal perspective, many of these claims can manifest them in completely traditional causes of action, be that deceit, misrepresentation, breach of consumer protection or sales of goods legislation or breach of statutory duty. On that basis, a group of consumers can already claim that they were misled into purchasing a product that they would not otherwise have bought, uh, but for some sort of green statement. And that statement has therefore caused them loss. Another potential type of claim that isn't new in itself is that investors could seek to bring a security style action under the FISMA regime in the UK for example, based on misleading statements as to the environmental performance of the company that induce them to invest when they say they otherwise would not have done so. What I think 
is novel at the moment is is the wider circumstances. You know, there is now both more public demand and more legal requirement for ESG-focused products and disclosures, and therefore more focus and scrutiny on the nature of company statements. For example, investors are actively seeking to focus on investments which proclaim themselves to be sustainable or ESG-focused. And that's why we've already seen some asset managers get into significant difficulty by suggesting that funds did not rely on extractive industries when in fact they did. The other aspect of this that I would highlight from a litigation perspective is that there are newer actors in the market. Um, first of all, for example, the NGOs, such as Client Earth, who are seeking to, to agitate and make headlines. Um, for example, um, in the case of Client Earth, with their novel, ultimately unsuccessful attempt to bring a derivative action against the directors of Shell. And then, more broadly, there are very active litigation funders and claimant firms looking for grounds to bring innovative and lucrative claims on behalf of large numbers of claimants. Thanks, Rachel. I mean, it sounds as if what we're seeing is an increase in greenwashing claims generally. Overall, globally, I would say, yes, that's right. Um, although I don't think we have seen any significant rise in claims in the UK yet. What may drive more claims is a combination of closer consumer and other stakeholder pressure, focus, and regulatory interest and action, combined with, as I mentioned, entities like G NGOs, claimant firms, and litigation funders looking to bring actions. So as I say, we haven't seen any big increase in claims yet, but I think you will see firms and funders looking at regulatory investigations or decisions as a potential basis for commencing civil actions for damages, whether that's in the High Court, which could be using an opt-in regime such as group litigation orders, or it might be in the Competition Appeal Tribunal under the opt-out collective proceedings regime there, if a claim can be grounded on a breach of competition law. But I would want to say that there will be very significant challenges for those claimants, not least in establishing causation and loss in a way that makes it economically viable to bring claims where the amount of loss to individual claimants might be very small indeed. Yeah, thank, thank you, Rachel. I think that's very clear. Um, let's just break that down a bit. I think it's clear that companies are simply saying far more about their environmental and social performance than they used to. So why is that? And I guess then the question is, are they legally obliged to do so? Yanis, maybe you can take that one. Over the last five years or so, there has definitely been an increasing pressure on companies to set out more information about their approach to ESG, environmental and social issues. Originally, that pressure was from stakeholders, shareholders or consumers or software that emerged from it. So in particular, there are a few things to look at here. In particular, that would have been customers across the retail sector being interested in environmental issues. So according to, to a study by, by GFK, 52% of global consumers said that because the pandemic, sustainability has become more important to them. And now that survey was conducted in 2021 and 
at least in the UK, cost of living concerns might have altered that perception somewhat um, today. But it is clear that for most consumers, if there are two options and, and one is better for the environment, they're increasingly likely to want to take that. And it's not just consumers. As, as Rachel mentioned, the increasing importance of access to responsible investment or lenders requiring certain levels of ESG performance are also driving companies to perform better in this area. We, we have now seen a shift, especially in the US and, and Europe, from, from what we've previously um, seen with regards to the, the voluntary disclosure standards to mandatory obligations on businesses in relation to non-financial reporting and, and market disclosures. So, for example, climate-related disclosures pursuant to the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, which were originally developed as a voluntary framework to help companies make climate-related disclosures, were then picked up by the FCA and imposed as a mandatory comply or explain obligation for listed companies. And in addition, a set of obligations closely aligned with the TCFD framework was also drafted into the Companies Act, illustrating how these soft law instruments can transition into hard law um, over time and how there's a, let's say, regulatory expectation for ESG disclosures to be made. And, and legal developments continue in this area. So particularly in the EU, where um, a lot of development has been happening, with the European Green Deal generating a number of actual and proposed new laws, which has included on the one hand the EU Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, which is going to expand massively the, the required disclosure that has to be made by companies active in the European single market, and there's the anticipated EU Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, which will look much more at supply chain activity and ESG performance within that. But the EU Commission published a proposal for a directive on green claims in March 23 as well. Now, many of these EU proposals look likely to apply beyond the EU as well to many companies who access the single market. And as I'd mentioned already with regards to the CSRD, it has expanded the EU scope on non-financial reporting from around what was originally 12,000 companies to what is now going to capture about 50,000 companies. Thanks, Yanis. That's very helpful. Rachel, can you tell us a bit more about the regulators here and their role? Yes, Susan. So just to focus uh, on, on the UK position, we're certainly seeing more activity um, from UK regulators on greenwashing specifically. So the UK Competition Markets Authority, the CMA, adopted its own green claims code back in September 2021. And that contains a series of six principles for businesses that label or market goods or services as environmentally friendly. So that essentially says that the claim should be truthful and accurate, clear and unambiguous, not omit important information. They should compare goods or services in a fair and meaningful way. They should consider the full life cycle of the product or service and, importantly, be substantiated. And those principles are intended to be consistent with advertising codes which are enforced by the Advertising Standards Authority. 
Failure to comply with that code could result in the CMA or trading standard services obtaining undertakings from the relevant companies to change the way they operate or potentially applying for an enforcement order from the courts. And under the DMCC, the Digital Markets Competition and Consumers Bill, which is currently going through Parliament, the CMA will have new direct enforcement powers to enforce breaches of consumer protection regulations as opposed to going through the courts. So uh, it will in due course be able to impose fines of up to 10% of annual global turnover of the businesses involved. So that is really quite significant potential penalty. Thanks, Rachel. And I think, I mean, a further example that springs to mind in the sort of sphere of enhanced regulator activity in this area is that in January 2022, the CMA carried out a review of the fashion sector and identified potential concerns around potentially misleading green claims. Uh, as I understand it, the CMA is continuing to look into this and earlier this year expanded that project to include an investigation into misleading green claims in fast-moving consumer goods. Yes, that is um, uh, an important example, I think. Uh, a further one, a uh, further example of um, CMA investigator activities is that they also looked in 2022 at home heating and boilers, conducted an investigation into that market. And on the back of that, just last month, they announced investigation into Worcester Bosch in relation to claims regarding hydrogen blend ready home boilers. So they do really seem to be stepping up their activity in this area. Um, I then mentioned the, the uh, Advertising Standards Authority, and of course, that is also something that businesses in the consumer sector have to bear in mind. They can take action for misleading advertising in breach of advertising codes and has done so, um, notably recently finding against Ryanair in relation to claims around CO2 emissions and Repsol in relation to statements about renewable hydrogen that the ASA said omitted material information, and they can compel ads to be taken down. So uh, drawing that together, I think given the number of environmental risk areas within the consumer sector, be that agriculture, garment manufacturing, global shipping, or simply the energy that businesses in the sector require to operate. Um, the consumer sector is an area where greenwashing risks are definitely heightened and growing. And in an age of global supply chains, what companies say about the social or environmental consequences of their operations requires constant vigilance because there are plenty of things that could go wrong. Um, and not only do they give rise to potential claims, but reputational risks too. Maybe maybe a good example with regards to, to the supply chain um, element that, that Rachel just mentioned. The, the recent complaint by an NGO to the CMA about Tesco relating to Brazilian chicken is a case in point here. Mighty Earth, the campaign group, announced that it had found some Brazilian chicken on sale by Tesco after it had said some years ago that it would no longer sell it given deforestation concerns in the Amazon. The campaign group encouraged the CMA to open an investigation in relation to this and the alleged use of soy elsewhere in the Tesco supply chain. Tesco said that it had happened out of error 
and there was a small branded supplier who Tesco didn't realize was using such chicken and that it had been rectified um, subsequently and that it was reminding all of its suppliers about its sourcing requirements. But it illustrates this reputational element as well that, that Rachel indicated. Thanks, Yanis. Um, I suppose another recent development that we should highlight is that a number of high profile companies have been in the news because of concerns regarding the efficacy of carbon offsetting. Um, many consumer sector and other businesses have sought to purchase carbon credits as a way of offsetting emissions that are generated through essential activities. And companies will often refer to those purchases in their sustainability reporting or their annual reporting or other public communications. And in many instances, the calculation of a business's emissions may include deductions due to those credits. Um, some operations, uh, some companies have used that as a basis to describe their operations as carbon neutral. However, some high um, profile recent press investigations have suggested that carbon credits are not a reliable or accurate way of reducing emissions. There have been questions raised over the methodology for calculating how many tonnes of carbon dioxide are removed by certain activities, as well as the conduct of some companies involved in administrating local projects, um, which are the centre of um, the generation of these carbon credits. So ultimately, it has been suggested that some of these credits have nowhere near the positive environmental or social impact that has been claimed. And I think that could well lead to business to business contractual disputes about what sellers of carbon credits have promised to sell. Uh, there are already a number of claims of greenwashing against businesses, including in the consumer sector, on the basis that green credentials are supported by carbon credits that don't actually provide the environmental, benef environmental benefits asserted. So, for example, um, Delta Airlines in California, which described itself as the world's first carbon neutral airline, based at least in part on carbon offsets, has been the target of litigation. Thanks, Rachel. And there's it's clear a lot going on here. I mean, Yanis, do you think that these issues might be such that they'll push businesses away from the whole idea of carbon offsetting? There, there, there's certainly reputational risks, and, and we may see some businesses moving away from carbon offsetting or at least seeking to de-risk their carbon offset investments. Due to the range of offset project types available on the market, there's quite naturally a range of quality. Importantly, carbon offsets in the voluntary space are not fungible due to the inherent potential differences in the nature of carbon offset credits and their underlying methodologies. A nature-based offset from a forestation project is very different from a science-based carbon sequestration project. While there will be obvious differences in, in price per credit, there will also be differences in the sequestration timeline and related project risks, for example, regarding future leakage of the sequestered carbon. However, in any event, discussions around the quality of specific offset credits will continue to be very important. And I expect that we will see a trend whereby companies insist on conducting detailed due diligence before they choose to identify specific projects that they are willing to invest in. 
and just approach it from a much more careful perspective to get comfortable with investment. I mean, thank you both for that. I, I just wonder, is there, is there a tension here potentially? So on the one hand, stakeholders in companies or lawmakers and other parties such as NGOs are encouraging companies to be more transparent in this area. And there's increasing regulation requiring companies to do that. But on the other hand, being transparent and open with the market can actually open up companies to major litigation risks, even when they're trying to do the right thing. I just wonder, are you seeing companies wanting to say less or not more? And might that be helpful or unhelpful for them? There seems to be a bit of a tension. Rachel, do you have some thoughts? Uh, yes, and and I have seen what you describe referred to as green hushing, and it's a very good point. Um, I think most people, most businesses, want mature discussions in relation to known issues. Many, possibly most companies face environmental risks in their business and their supply chain, just as they do social and human rights risks. And I still think there is a very significant school of thought that the best way to identify and address those risks is by encouraging businesses to invest in identifying them and to be open about seeking to uh, seeking to cure them, seeking to improve them, not by hiding or turning a blind eye to those risks, but by the by using strong corporate governance, ultimately. But I think the problem is there are an increasing number of actors in the market seeking to exploit those issues. And the main incentive of funders and claimant firms, for example, are, are profits from claims, ideally where they can force the company to settle at a relatively early stage for reputational reasons, as often happens in the US. So that is obviously a significant challenge and risk for, for businesses. I, I agree. The, the answer for business is, is not to close the shutters. Sophisticated investors, lenders and consumers are increasingly aware of the environmental risks of a particular business. And saying nothing risks the implication that the business is doing nothing. The secret is to ensure that the business is in fact taking reasonable steps to identify and mitigate risks and to remedy effectively any adverse impacts that are caused. This requires sophisticated thought as to the necessary policy frameworks and governance structures for the business, carrying out impact investment in advance and due diligence on any ongoing basis, including supply chain due diligence. And ultimately ensuring that careful thought and legal input goes into all public communications on these issues. And it may require the business to engage openly with stakeholders, including local communities, consumers, relevant NGOs, investors and lenders to set an open and constructive dialogue towards improving performance. I think ultimately, Susan, the, the main takeaway for our listeners is no, no matter what the pressure, uh, a company must not uh, make public statements, whether it's a product label or whether it is something in their accounts that cannot be substantiated. And if that does happen for whatever reason, then there might need to be an immediate reputation and damage limitation exercise to be conducted. But also the business needs to ask itself, how can we avoid this happening again? And look at the broader ESG positioning of the company to help reduce the risk going forward. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Yanis. 
And we've covered a lot of ground here, and I'm sure everyone will have found it extremely helpful. We will have further podcasts over the coming weeks, so do please keep an eye out for those. And also, if you have a chance, do take a look at the website, the Consumer Sector page, and also the ESG Hub. Many thanks for joining us. Thank you.